What are you reading now? And what have you read in the past? How do the things you've read in the past help you better understand what you're reading today? Or in the future for that matter? And what if it wasn't just what you read, but what you listened to or watched? And hey, what if this could be shared with lots of folks? Welcome to That Reminds Me. This is episode 1i, featuring a conversation between Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna, recorded on the 3rd of April 2020. Ashish and Adish discussed Ben Schott's book, Jeeves and the King of Clubs, and two episodes of the podcast In Our Time, about the history of coffee and the 1870-71 siege of Paris. This episode took many digressions, including Ashish and Adish's own coffee habits, the possibilities of Lord Emsworth secretly being a spy master, and how Mervyn Peake's Gourmet Gas series may also be a Woodhouse setting gone terribly wrong. Good afternoon, Ashish. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Day 8 or 9 of the lockdown. I'm beginning to lose count over here. But all good. Day 12, according to me. But as you said, who's keeping count? <laughs> Pretty much, exactly. All right, moving on to cheerier topics, uh, we're going to speak about uh, three of the posts that you have written, right? So we are back to I interviewing you. Yeah, except I'm thinking that more and more it ends up uh, the two of us asking each other questions and quoting books to each other. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Nothing at all, but it's good to keep up pretenses. That's all we seem exactly. to be doing these days. Exactly. All right, so the three things that we are ostensibly going to be speaking about today, uh, I'll just, for the benefit of the listeners, uh, count them out. The first is Jeeves and the King of Clubs. This is written by Ben Short. The second is uh, The Siege of Paris from 1870 to 71. Um, this is from In Our Time. And the third is once again an In Our Time uh, episode, and this is about coffee. I've got those right, correct? Uh, yeah, can't wait to get started. All right, so let's begin with the one that I think you and I are not even secretly the most passionate about, Jeeves, Bertie Wooster, and the magical, mystical world of P.G. Woodhouse. I have not read anything um, about Bertie and Wooster that is not directly from the pen of P.G. Woodhouse, and I actually have considered it a almost a sacrilegious thing to even read a Jeeves and Wooster story penned by somebody else, but you seem to have thoroughly enjoyed it. That is true. I got recommended this book last year, only got down to it uh, once lockdown started and I decided that I wanted to spend as much time reading as light fiction as possible. And mm -hmm. it's really worked out well for me. Okay, so before we begin speaking about this particular book, for the benefit of our listeners, and if at all there is somebody who's not heard of Bertie and Wooster or not yet uh, experienced P.G. Woodhouse's penmanship. Could you give a brief introduction to the original Jeeves and Wooster series and your opinion of what Woodhouse was trying to do with both of them? Woodhouse was a writer of comedy. Mm -hmm. He created the ca character Bertie Wooster and Jeeves in the 1920s. He kept writing books featuring Jeeves and Wooster all the way in, uh, into the 1970s. While the environment and circumstances changed around uh, Jeeves and Wooster, Jeeves and Wooster always remained very much a sort of 1910s, 1920s uh, couple of characters. 
a rich young London man who didn't have to work for a living mm-hmm. and his personal servant. How the joke starts off is that the manservant is much smarter than Bertie Wooster actually is. Mm-hmm. He has a huge breadth of education. He is able to solve complicated problems involving relationships, money, through either counseling or through sheer trickery and guile. And he keeps getting Bertie Wooster out of all sorts of trouble, whether that trouble involves being engaged to the wrong woman, whether that trouble involves having to steal artwork for his aunt, or whether it involves his friends being engaged to the wrong people. And as it turns out, that's a pretty good uh, summary. And as it turns out, uh, in the current book that you're reading by Ben Short, all of this seems to have been an elaborate cover. Bertie simply isn't as absent-minded or as hopeless as he's made out to be. That's just all for show, apparently. Well, that's my interpretation. But it's not that Ben Short makes this explicit in the book. But mm-hmm. he certainly does write Bertie Wooster in a way that is much more, well, maybe not much more, but certainly more intelligent than Woodhouse himself wrote Wooster. Mm-hmm. And once you have that uh, initial direction set of Wooster being a little smarter than you've traditionally seen him, mm-hmm. I went down the path of saying, hey, what if he was much, much smarter and all the original books are just Wooster make, making himself out to be an idiot. <laughs> so, uh, I, as a uh, Woodhouse trivia fan, I can't help but ask uh, the one time that I think there is only one story in which Jeeves writes it in the first person and Wooster is described in the third person. That's correct. How there's will that one... story fit into your theory? Before we get to that, there's one yeah. story which Jeeves writes in the first person, but there's mm-hmm. also one story in which uh, there's a third person narrator and Jeeves features, but Bertie Wooster doesn't. That's the little girl. The story you brought up does have little girls and feet. Oh, yeah, yeah, correct, correct. Yes. And it's the story of how Jeeves uh, manages to discourage gently Bertie Wooster from the idea of adopting girls. <laughs> yes. The story which I'm talking about is a full-length book uh, which uh, features Bertie post-World War II off at a school which uh, teaches rich people how to function oh, yes. in a post-war economy. All right. So the reason I brought up the story that I read is to ask you how your theory might still stand up to scrutiny under the fact that Jeeves in that story doesn't seem to have a very high opinion of his master's capabilities either. One of the advantages of my theory is that any of the original stories can be explained as uh, simply providing cover. (laughs) Okay, all right. So let me begin with the Goodreads summary. You've posted uh, the Goodreads description of this particular story. And one thing that I take very seriously is, as I'm sure anybody who reads P.G. Woodhouse does, is the quality of the wordplay. And the Goodreads summary says that this new madcap adventure is full of everything that you will expect from a Woodhouse story, but also most importantly, the Woodhousean wordplay. As a connoisseur of this wordplay, would you say that Ben Short lives up to expectations in this regard? What I feel is that Ben Short's wordplay is 
almost as good as Woodhouse's without being exactly the same. But as I mentioned uh, when I first wrote about this book, yeah, even Woodhouse's later later books did not really live up to the wordplay of his earlier books. Agreed. Still being really delightful, and I I feel what Menshot has written is slightly comparable to to that. It's just as good without being the same. And you mean that as a compliment, not as a criticism. I do mean that as a compliment. Let's delve deeper into this particular book itself, and let's see what this reminds me of. You are combining a whole variety of genres over here. Uh, you're speaking about maybe potentially there being, or there perhaps should be, a sci-fi or a time travel explanation to the saga or the timeline of Wooster stories. Could you build on that a little bit? As I mentioned uh, when we were speaking about a brief explainer of what uh, Jeeves and Wooster uh, are. Yeah. The setting of the Jeeves and Wooster books is pretty much the setting of the time the books were written. There are books written in the 1920s, which are set in the 1920s. There are books written in the 1950s, which are set in the 1950s. There are books written in the 60s and 70s, which are set at that time. Right. In all this time, only about five or six years have actually pa- passed for Jeeves and Wooster themselves. Mm-hmm. They're still very young people. B- Bertie Wooster's Aunt Dahlia has not aged at all and is still as active as she ever was. Whereas if she had been aging at the same time as the time around them, she would have been in some sort of old age home and barely able to leave her bed. So you have this sort of internal inconsistency, which is that the technology around the characters is changing all the time. They themselves aren't aging. And this is also the sort of time which you see passing in the Archie comics and also in the children's book series of William. With the William uh, books, we did get a sci-fi explanation in Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman's Good Omens. They posited that William created an aura around himself in which time simply did not move from the idyllic period of the 1920s. This is the Just William series that you're talking about? It is. Ah, Rick Mill Crompton. Okay, that's that's a serious blast from the past. But the first thing that this reminded me of, and I really want to uh, explore this in greater detail, there's a part of me that's wondering if it's all one giant conspiracy right now. I just have begun to think that Lord Emsworth would, would make a very, very, very good spy master. Blanding's castle is eminently suited for the role. And if I were to bring in a little bit of James Bond, it can't be a coincidence that his name is Emsworth. Ashish, I was taking a drink of water right now and you almost made me uh, spit it out laughing. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment, but come on, it can't be a coincidence. There's there's a greater conspiracy afoot over here. We just happen to be the first ones who dug it out. Ian Fleming did come up with uh, the James Bond series about 30 years after P.G. Woodhouse uh, came up with Lord Emsworth. <laughs> so, which... Uh, so we'll again need a uh, science fiction and time travel explanation to explain how that inspired the other. But I maintain worth pursuing. It, it gives me an excuse to read Woodhouse and Fleming for the remaining days of the lockdown. And what better task to set oneself? See, my personal conspiracy theory or extended universe theory about Lord Emsworth and the Blanding Castles books mm-hmm. 
involves uh, the other science fiction-ish, fantasy-ish series called Gormenghast. I haven't read this. Okay. Yeah, I don't think it's very familiar to uh, Indian readers. A quick explanation for people who aren't familiar with it. Gormenghast is a sort of feudal castle with a village surrounding it. Over three or four uh, books, we find out that it's not in the past, it's in the far future. And it is just that this one castle with a really crazy family uh, inside it has been completely cut off from the world uh, around it, has maintained feudal life uh, all the time, while in the world outside, technology has moved on and you have flying cars and similar. Mm -hmm. So my personal explanation for this is that in the Blanding's book, Leave it to Smith, uh, yes, uh, Smith uh, manages to get... uh, uh, Baxter so enraged that he spends a whole morning flinging flower pots into Lord Emsworth's room and gets fired. Now, what if Gormenghast is the world where Baxter did not get fired, keeps Blanding's castle within his organizational capabilities and mm-hmm. makes it so regimented that the family never breaks from routine, goes stir crazy and both Blanding's Castle and the village next by completely fall under the spell and get stuck in this frozen, very regimented world. It says something about uh, how enamored I am by your theory that I almost wanted to be true because that gives me a shot at, at visiting this place at one point of time. <laughs> in Gormenghast, things go terribly wrong. So it's as, it's as if... Uh, Smith was the only thing standing between Baxter's world domination and how bad it could have made things. Although uh, the story in which uh, Baxter and Smith meet at Blandings is probably one of my two all-time favorite Woodhouse novels. I just not I just, I just needed to mention that. It's a good choice. <laughs> Although, I mean, we can keep on uh, going and I'm not even referring to your notes right now. I'm just delving into my memories of Woodhouse, but it also raises interesting questions about the role of uh, Uncle Galahad. I think Uncle Galahad would make a fabulous end. Oh, absolutely. This this is, this is might end up taking us somewhere. But all right, back to your notes and I'll be tempted to go away from them and into the Woodhousean universe every now and then. But it turns out the types of ethical theory is actually a real book. Again, for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with the complete works of P.G. Woodhouse, mm-hmm. the first time we ever encounter uh, Bertie Wooster and Jeeves is the story in which he hires Jeeves for the first time. Yep. He is at this time engaged to a lady called Florence Gray. Yes. And Florence Gray is a woman who is far more serious than Bertie's happy-go-lucky ways. And is trying to make him read a book called Types of Ethical Theory. And uh, we start off with uh, Bertie Wooster opening Types of Ethical Theory at random, reading out a very weighty passage and wondering how on earth he's able to get uh, get along with it. Towards the end of the story, we find that Jeeves points out that a woman who is making Bertie Wooster read Types of Ethical Theory is not perhaps the ideal wife for him. 
<laughs> that's putting it mildly all this while i thought that types of ethical theory was simply a fictional creation within, within the story it turned out to be a real book i'm tempted to try and see if it is available to buy just just to to keep it uh, with me at one point of time uh there's one thing that i wanted to uh, and this is a reference from uh, the woodhouseian universe once again so we are skipping between our collective memory woodhouse and your notes but that also happens to be if memory serves me correctly the first story in which we hear about jeeves magic pick me up containing uh, worcestershire sauce and the rawness of the egg i believe so yes and i was in school when i read it so it didn't make much sense to me but the first time that i woke up with a hangover i remember wishing that that part of the story was actually true i could have done with something like that uh the other thing that i was a bit confused about is this character called iona would you mind elaborating a bit on who she is and what her role is in the story it's probably time for us to actually get into the plot of this book rather than the plot of all the old bertie and who uh, jeeves books jump right in okay so jeeves is a member in the woodhouse books itself of a club called the junior ganymede which is supposed to be a club for butlers valets and other uh, personal man servants right the premise of this book jeeves and the king of clubs mm-hmm. is that the junior ganymede club is actually an association of secret agents working for british intelligence the rationale for this is that anyone who is a vip and who is entertaining foreign visitors or who is entertaining members of various political parties etc will uh, have servants in attendance and if these servants are discreetly eavesdropping they can report back to british intelligence about what exactly these foreign visitors are up to okay this is the setup the person within formal military intelligence who is interfacing with the junior ganymede club is a scottish gentleman called lord mac auslan and his daughter is iona mac auslan and over the course of the book we find that she is also involved in espionage activities she is actually a, a photographer in in the book but and employed as a photographer but in the mm-hmm. course of being a professional photographer she will simply land up at various uh, places and no one will know that what she's focusing on is not the tourists in front of a military base but the but the military base itself so uh, before you go on with the uh, rest of the plot uh, one thing that i wanted to bring up is it just struck me how many stories based out of england uh, seem to rely on clubs as either a central plot point or crucially helpful to moving the plot along whether it is the club that we are speaking about right now whether it is the uh, diogenes club in sherlock holmes stories whether it is the club i can't for the life of me remember the name right now but the club in the yes minister series clubs are central to quite a few of these plots and i think this is something which we'll uh, come back to once we talk about uh, coffee yes that would be an excellent way to segue into that uh, blog post but all right please continue with the plot over here this is something which perhaps is exaggerated but it it does seem that uh, clubs whether with clubhouses or not 
and the general associations which people form in the United Kingdom have really contributed a lot to lots of things happening and that literature reflects this. And you and I are both fans of Neil Stephenson. So yes. when we look at the Baroque cycle and how the Royal Society starts simply as an association of uh, amateur scientists yep. and then uh, ends up hosting people who make major discoveries of the modern age is also a real historical example of this. Yep, absolutely. So the two things that this reminds me of, and they're two very weird references to give, especially when taken together. One is uh, Bill Bryson has written a book called Seeing Further the Story of Science and the Royal Society, which if you haven't read it, uh, not just you, Adish, but also our listeners, is, is worth uh, reading about how the society came to be. And the second is an even weirder reference. I'm trying to get my daughter to like reading, and we are just starting off on the first Secret 7 story. And that also, believe it or not, begins with the club. So there's really something to the idea that the British Isles have come up with a pretty good concept when it comes to clubs. That's true. And I'm wondering why it is that uh, this is so. This is possibly also a good time to uh, mention Alexis de Tocqueville and his theory that America was yes. very good at volunteerism and voluntary associations. But somehow American voluntary associations have never seemed to have the impact that British clubs do, or so at least they've, they've never made it into literature the way British clubs have. I well, honestly think we should we, consider taking donations from sociologists from this episode in. <laughs> <laughs> or, or we possibly start getting sociologists in on the, these calls. <laughs> the first method gives us more money, so I'll go with that one. We can use it to hire transcriptors or pay them. <laughs> There's a thought. There's a thought. All right, so back to the plot. So we have this uh, club and we have the daughter who is supposed to be a photographer, but she's more than that. What happens next? This is a nice coincidence which links up with the last episode uh, which we recorded. Mm -hmm. As we already know from the original uh, Woodhouse books with Jeeves and Wooster, yeah. there is a character called Roderick Spode who is a fascist, yep. a British fascist. Spode is based on genuine British uh, fascists. The fascist movement was not limited to Germany or Italy. There were attempts to have fascist political parties in Great Britain too, prior yep. to the outbreak of the World War. What the book is trying to uh, examine and suggest is that these fascist political parties are up to no good. And Spode is one of the villains involved in this. But another uh, villain in the story turns out to be Bertie Wooster's bank manager. The interesting thing which comes here is that the author has mentioned in EndNotes that this particular villainous bank manager is based on a real manager of the Bank of England who helped to transfer the foreign exchange or gold reserves of Czechoslovakia to Nazi Germany after Germany invaded and annexed Czechoslovakia. Okay. Why this ties up with the last episode we recorded is that the counterparty this person, real-life Bank of England head, was dealing with in Germany is 
a person called Hjalmar Schacht, who was the head of the German Reichsbank and who is the person who whose idea it was to use the new currency to combat hyperinflation. This is fascinating. Okay. And Hjalmar Schacht, the head of the German Reichsbank, had in fact asked this uh, Bank of England governor, Sir Gilbert Skinner, to be the godfather of one of his children. One of the entirely unexpected benefits of having these conversations, Adish, is you tend to remember the weirdest of things. So when you're speaking about the British fascists, for some reason, I remembered a novel by Ken Follett in which a group of people try to escape England during the Second World War, one of which happens to be a family whose head is a sympathizer of the Nazis in Germany. I can't remember the name of the story, but it involved flying across the Atlantic in a blimp, if I remember correctly. I'm sorry, I've never read any Ken Follett, but okay. why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? That's kind of the point of these uh, stories. And I also happened to be looking up the Wikipedia article on uh, Sir Roderick Spode while you were talking. And I wonder how much of, not the Ben Short story, but how much of uh, Woodhouse's writing of Sir Roderick Spode was based on his uh, being kept under house arrest, imprisonment, call it whatever you will, during the Second World War. Not much because uh, Roderick Spode was introduced before the uh, Second World War at a time when British fascism was active. Ah, okay. Coming back to the plotline and the uh, stories, is this the only novel that he has written so far or are there more in the pipeline? Do you know? It's certainly the only Jeeves and Wooster novel which he's written. Okay. I'm not sure if he's written other novels. He, cert- uh, he certainly has written something else, but I can't remember if it's a novel or non-fiction. But uh, he did get a blessing from P.G. Woodhouse's uh, step-grandson. And I'm not sure if this was an official or unofficial blessing, but uh, P.G. Woodhouse's uh, grandson did encourage Ben Short to write this book. All right. Not only is this added to the list, but this shoots to the top of the to-read list. So I'll be sure to read this and perhaps we can come back and speak more about it. Having covered uh, all of what we did with Woodhouse, I must and you must tear yourselves away from uh, speaking about Woodhouse. So the next episode that we shall be speaking about is coffee. And it's not like you and I are ever going to complain about having to speak more about coffee, but this is the second time that we'll be recording this episode, right? That's true. We unfortunately had a Skype error the last time we did. Right. So if we sound especially rehearsed, that's because we are. It actually is going to end up being one of my favorite episodes. If you're speaking about Woodhouse and coffee, there can't be too much wrong with the uh, episode. But before we begin, let's speak to our audience about our mutual love for coffee and how addicted I am. And I think you are as well to the beverage. That's true. This is uh, something which I've now been drinking for 22 years and started off with instant coffee went on to using coffee grounds and um, have to use a lot of uh, instant coffee still because I travel so much collecting coffees from across the world trying coffees across the world and it's been a very very pleasurable dependence addiction or habit depending on how much I'm 
complimenting myself or how much I'm <laughs> going with my wife's version of things. If uh, it's any solace to you, we're sailing in the same boat uh, where both our own opinions about our, I'm going to call it habit and our wife's opinions about our addiction is pretty much the same story. On the bright side, I have managed to get my wife to share the habit at least up to one cup a day, which I count as one of the successes of my marriage. <laughs> we are in the same boat there as well. So she's, she now, my wife now prefers coffee to tea. And that's, like you said, one of the major successes in the last 12 years of my marriage. But all right, so let's start speaking about uh, coffee and what you've written about it. This is from a podcast that you listen to uh, called In Our Time. And the entire episode is not just about the history of the coffee bean itself, but also the so- social impact that it has had. Adish, we spoke uh, in the earlier blog post about clubs and we mentioned about how segueing over into this particular episode will be worth a while because we're speaking about the emergence of coffee houses, the emergence of newspapers and the link to the British fascination with clubs. Would you mind expanding on this with regard to what you've written in the blog post, please? Sure. So when coffee drinking reached Britain, it's important to understand that this is in the 16th or 17th century. Yeah. And making coffee, just sourcing coffee itself is extremely difficult. So right from the origins of coffee in the Ottoman Empire, coffee is not a drink which you make at home. Coffee is a drink which is made by somebody and served. Right. What ends up happening is that groups of people who have a shared interest which could either be a professional interest they they are all merchants or they are all soldiers or it could be an amateur interest that they are all interested in a certain aspect of science Mm -hmm. form slight associations start congregating at specific coffee houses and go there to have coffee but the culture at the coffee house is that coffee is prepared somewhere off uh, off table served at a table but there is only one table the social norm here is that you come down sit at the table and strike up a conversation with whomsoever is sitting next to you right this you in fact uh, mentioned on your blog uh, one of the bullet points is another way to think about it is that the coffee house is the material form of the right to form associations yeah very much so because we can refer to uh, adam smith now and his quotation about man's propensity to truck butter and associate if i'm right. getting it right and but even if i'm not there is a propensity to associate but it's so difficult to associate if you don't have a public space to do it, uh, do it in and the coffee house was serving that purpose. It was serving that purpose as recently as uh, the television series Friends. So there's a long and rich cultural history to this. True. The other thing that uh, you mentioned in your blog post, which is equally fascinating, especially as an economist, is the fact that coffee is not just a drink that requires not just a divisional labor, but also specialization. But it also requires a phenomenon called urbanization, which to me was fascinating. As I said, coffee 
has always been a difficult uh, drink to source. Mm-hmm. In addition to this, it's also a very difficult drink to prepare. You first have to source beans. You then have to grind beans. And in fact, between the uh, sourcing and the grinding, you have to roast straw Grind beans roasting, up, yes. up, up to the desired level of uh, darkness. Bitterness, yep. And once the drying and grinding is done is when you finally get down to the brewing. Yep. There are so many steps involved that no single person can start with raw coffee beans and and prepare a drink of coffee for himself or herself without spending a ridiculous amount of time to have that division of labor and the economy of scale which makes it worthwhile to serve coffee you don't get that on a farm or in a village you need cities for that a couple of other points that i wanted to speak about where this blog post is concerned a differential pricing particularly in italy but this is true throughout europe we have different prices for coffee that is served so to speak standing up and coffee that is served on the table that's correct the panel in the in our time episode went into this and mentioned that coffee served when you sit down and coffee served when you just drink the cup at the counter and push it back have different prices and at least for italy i can't speak to the rest of europe this is true not just for coffee but for food as well the food which you eat at the counter costs more than the food which you eat sitting down even if all you're having is a sandwich i would much prefer to not drink coffee from starbucks because i think they overdose their uh, coffee beans although that's a matter of opinion but i'm sad to report that starbucks at least in india doesn't carry this practice forward it doesn't matter whether you take a coffee in house or to go the price remains the same that's true whereas in italy as the uh, panel explained because this practice of differential pricing has been in place so long the culture has evolved around it and italians prefer to drink their coffee standing up whereas starbucks as policy focuses uh, on getting you to sit down and enjoying the ambience and so not only are starbucks's prices much higher in italy than the competing espresso bars mm-hmm. they face resistance among customers who simply are not accustomed to sitting down and having a coffee true and the uh, other thing that i wanted to ask you about was the fact that coffee is an urban drink explains why starbucks is more prevalent in democratic states and republican ones i yeah. think this is understandable but just to make sure that i'm not uh, getting the inference completely incorrect would you mind explaining exactly what you mean by this yeah so we're talking about uh, the united states over here if concentration and spread of starbucks outlets is mapped across america you find that they are much more prevalent in states which tend to vote for democratic governments than in states which vote for the republican party and this is probably to do with the association that more urbanized uh, locations tend to uh, vote for the democratic party whereas less urbanized and more rural and suburban places tend to vote for the republican party if only it worked in reverse as well if only we could somehow cure the world by opening up multiple starbucks the world over it might be worthwhile to see if you map vote share of the political parties and you also map the spread and revenue and number of outlets of starbucks which one follows the other <laughs> yep exactly 
All right. A positive time more than anything else, unfortunately, means that we must skip on to the third blog post right now. Although there's a lot that I want to speak about where coffee is concerned. Maybe, Adish, we can do one more episode about this uh, sometime later. Sounds fantastic. All right. Let's move on to the third of the blog posts that we were going to be speaking about today. This is the Siege of Paris, 1870 to 71. This once again comes from uh, the podcast In Our Time. Uh, this episode is about the siege of uh, Paris during the Franco-Prussian War, although there are other elements to this blog post as well, which will become clear as we begin speaking about them. I had the pleasure of visiting Paris twice recently, but I get the sense others that the kind of Paris that is being described over here is very different from the kind of Paris that I got to see two years ago. And why is that? For a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that it was under siege. It was anything but under siege when I visited it. But it's not just the fact that it was under siege. I get the sense by reading this blog post that the culture of Paris was very different then than it seems to be right now. The word bohemian comes to mind in the current context, but I suspect that's not the feeling that one gets by listening to this podcast. No, this podcast is full of violence, revolution and uh, brutal dictatorship. Could you build on that, please? What exactly was the setting like in 1871 and why was Paris under siege? Well, in 1870 and 1871, and this goes back to what we discussed in the previous episode, France was at war with Prussia. Yeah. And uh, Prussia had invaded France and had been extremely successful at it. The French government withdrew from Paris. Mm-hmm. Paris itself was under siege from the French army. And during this period of time, the working classes of Paris decided to set up their own government and act as a independent state. And they called themselves the Paris Commune because there was just so much violence involved. I ended up losing track of who was at war with whom at what time that sounds classically french but there was a situation where there was a prussian army outside the city mm-hmm. but the french government itself which had sued for peace was now faced with the task of getting the capital back so the paris commune which had started out purely as an attempt by the citizens of Paris to resist the invading Prussians ended up being in a civil war with the French government itself. You've uh, mentioned in your blog post that this, while listening to this podcast, you were wondering if Les Miserables was uh, set in the siege of Paris and that apparently you got wrong. I'm sure I will have gotten the date wrong myself, but the one thing that this reminded me of is made me wonder whether the French onion soup came out as a consequence of this particular siege. This is something we should look up. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't mind uh, looking it up as we are talking. But I remember reading uh, on the wall of some uh, French restaurant, I can't for the life of me remember which one now in Paris, about how the French onion soup came about as a cheap, easy way to feed the masses during one of the wars that Paris seems to have made a habit of uh, every now and then, as you mentioned. And I found myself wondering if the French onion soup was because of this particular siege. In fact... uh, Again, during one of the sieges, and I don't remember if it was this one, which speaks to how many times Paris ends up being besieged. 
is that uh, yeah. as the population started starving, they first began eating horses once the beef ran out. And they were eating not horses which had been farmed for meat, but they were eating horses out of transportation stables. Wow, okay. And once the horses ran out, they started eating the zoo animals. And <laughs> once the zoo animals ran out, they started eating rats. <laughs> okay. This is new information and not very palatable one considering I still have to have lunch. But I'll try and forget all of what I just heard. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Maybe we should go back to coffee. <laughs> with pleasure, with pleasure. But uh, speaking about uh, Paris, the other thing is, and we mentioned Simon Winder's book. I'm presuming this is the same one that we spoke about in the last episode. It has a line that goes along uh, like this. It took no deep strategic sense to notice that at periodic intervals, France went mad and invaded everybody. And you suggested switching that to Paris having a revolution at periodic intervals. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, the original line was in the context of how uh, first, I think it was Louis XIV who was extremely ambitious in his attempts to extend both France's actual territory as well as its overall influence in Europe, then mm -hmm. followed by N Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars, which was actual invasions, and finally the Franco-Prussian War. And we were discussing this last time in the context of how Prussia felt that it simply had to organize all of Germany into a cohesive whole to uh, prevent French influence. Finding out that Les Miserables is from a completely different uh, revolution in Paris compared to this one makes you wonder just how many uh, revolutions does Paris have every now and then because they went to the barricades in the 1960s as well. Yeah. So it does seem that there's something about Paris which encourages everyone to have a revolution. Possibly, yes. Uh, I was speaking to some friends of mine uh, when I visited uh, Paris earlier this year and they were mentioning the strikes of the 1960s as well. But apparently at that point of time, the middle class was not just not against the strikes, they were vehemently in favor of it. And participants. And participants, exactly. Yeah, which is untrue of the siege of Paris being described in this episode. The middle classes fled the city along with the government hated the working class uprising and were encouraging the French government to reinvade Paris and uh, put down the revolution. Not quite sure how to think about Paris uh, along these lines. Uh, the last time that we were there as a family, this was in November 2018. The day on which we left is the day on which the Gilets Jean movement uh, started. The Green Vests or Orange Vests? I can't remember. Yellow Vests. Yellow Vests, I'm sorry. Uh, the Yellow Vest protest uh, started. So the tradition of Paris just losing it and going ape seems to continue even in the modern context. Well, as far as I know from very removed news reading, the Yellow Vest movement was more rural working classes getting annoyed and invading Paris. We were safely out of Paris the very day on which it started. So can't, I was not as removed as you were, but close enough 
so i don't know what the truth is but paris does seem to attract its share of revolutions that much is certainly true all right arist uh, let's stop over here for today three episodes out of which i don't mind admitting because of the bias that i have the woodhouse was the woodhouse one was my favorite by far so uh, truly i we did spend much more time on that than we do usually and i speak for myself but i think also for you when i say that we had to tear ourselves away from that one but hopefully we can circle back to that episode or at least something related to it soon we did have to tear ourselves from the coffee episode as well but the happy news is that we can now go back to an actual coffee absolutely and that's about as good a note on which we can end as ever so thank right. you adish i hope to speak to you soon so so do i take care you too bye you've been listening to that reminds me episode 1i today's conversation was between ashish kulkarni and adish khanna ashish's blog is econforeverybody.com and adish's blog is adish.net that's a a d i s h t.net that reminds me is a podcast produced by ashish kulkarni and adish khanna you can find all episodes of this podcast at thatreminds.me by can leave your comments you can also email us our address is feedback@thatreminds.me the podcast is supported in part by a grant from emergent ventures the show music is the carnival of the animals performed by the seattle roots symphony courtesy of mozopic at nusopen.org 